0: Well, I want to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, beginning verse 6, and we're going to be reading down to verse 13. Romans chapter 9, beginning verse 6, and reading to verse 13, as we begin to encounter this great revelation from God through the pen of the Apostle Paul, some really pivotal and crucial chapters as it relates to uh, scripture. And as I mentioned last week as we are gave somewhat of a summary last week as we were um, gonna open up Romans nine, that Romans nine, ten and eleven is a unit. And Paul is has really a singular focus or singular purpose in why he's writing this. And it deals with some questions that are being asked or being levied against him in regards to God's faithfulness. So if we could probably think of an overarching theme for Romans 9, 10, 11, I think that that would be the theme, God's faithfulness, that God is faithful. Um, and what we're going to see here this morning is how God is faithful to his word. Um, so there, there's going to be a lot of of, uh, of themes and um Things that kind of come up in Romans chapter nine that maybe you're be thinking, I, I wonder what's really going on here. Um, you know, there's there's theological issues that that surround this whole three chapters of, of Romans. Now, my intention mainly is to just say what the text says. Um, I'm hoping that as we go along, that maybe everything will kind of fit together a little bit in in our mind. And so, there there may be some questions that you're having about. Say, for instance, what we're going to talk about this morning that may be answered a little bit later on in uh, Romans uh, chapter 9, 10, and 11. So if you have those questions, I want to encourage you just to hold those questions, and maybe they will be answered. But if you're impatient like me, then just ask me those questions, and I'll answer them the best that I can. So I, I've given some thought, too, that after I finish Romans 9, 10, 11, it's going back and maybe preaching a couple of sermons to... to Uh, maybe show how this unit this whole unit fits together and maybe to deal with some of these maybe theological questions that we may have we'll we'll see how that goes but uh, but for this morning our focus is on Romans 9 and verses 6 through uh, 13 and we are going to really get into the beginning of the the crux of the matter as it relates to Paul as he begins to defend the faithfulness of God is God Faithful. That's the question. Uh, It's not just a question that they were asking in the church in Rome. I think it's a question that we're still asking today. Is God faithful? How do we know that God is faithful? And and the reason that we ask that, that question is because in our human minds and within our own humanity, we know that people aren't always faithful. People are not always true to their word. What they say might not actually be what they do. And so there's a, there's a lot of dishonesty that goes on. And so we may think that God's not faithful. Or we may be looking at various parts of Scripture that say one thing and something seems to be so contrasted to that, and it causes us to question whether God actually even knows what he's talking about. Well, what's going on here? And so this question of the faithfulness of God is not just a question that was asked 2,000 years ago, but I think it's a question that's relevant that's been asked for the last 2,000 years and still being asked today, especially when people encounter suffering in their life and they wonder if God is faithful. They, They look at all these promises that God gives in Scripture and wonder, where is this God who makes these promises? Is he keeping this promise? And The promises that God makes, especially that we saw back in in Romans chapter 8, we see this wonderful promise that God makes that nothing can separate us from the love of God. If God is not faithful, then that means that that promise he gives comes under attack as well. And yet we're still waiting for our ultimate promise of the Lord Jesus Christ coming again. Here we have been waiting as a church for 2,000 years since he's ascended. When is he going to come? Is he going to come? I mean, The world seems to be getting darker and evil and become, seems to be becoming increasingly difficult. Is the Lord faithful to his promise in that regard? And So Paul addresses this issue about God's faithfulness to his people, Israel. Is God faithful to his people? That's the question he's going to address. But even though it's addressed specifically to that, I think that as Paul defends the faithfulness of God, but it really applies to all the promises. Because if if it is proven that God's not faithful to Israel, then that means that God may not be faithful to other promises that he makes. So Paul launches into a serious discussion and an all-out defense on whether God really is indeed a faithful God. So let's look here in Romans chapter 9, beginning with verse 6, and here's what God's Word says. But it's not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all the children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of the promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you will help us today to understand your word. Give us insight, give us clarity, and more than anything, Father, I just pray that you'll be present in your word, and that as we leave here today, we will be renewed in our understanding and resolute that we believe that you are indeed faithful. You are a faithful God who keeps your word. And keeps your promises. And I pray this in the name of your Son Jesus. Amen. Now, this, this section here flows logically from what we looked at last week, especially as it relates to verses 4 and 5, as the Apostle Paul recounts the privileges of Israel. So he begins in Romans chapter 9 and verses 1 through 3. He speaks about his heartbreaking for the fact that the Jews or that Israel is in unbelief they have rejected the Messiah. And then he recounts the privileges that Israel has. To them was given the promises. To them was given the patriarch. To them was given the law. To them was given the glory. And ultimately to them was given the Messiah. And so since all of these things were given to Israel, and now that Israel has has been rejecting the Messiah, not completely, There has been a people within Israel, Paul was one of those, who was accepting Jesus Christ as Messiah. But since they are ultimately rejecting the Messiah, that leads them to believe that maybe God is not faithful. If he has given all these things to us, then how come Israel is now being rejected by God? And so that precipitates Paul, beginning in verse 6, to ask this question or to make this statement in verse 6, but it's not that the Word of God has taken no effect, or maybe to say it another way to translate it another way, and it's not that the Word of God has failed. Well he wants to make crystal clear at the forefront that what the Old Testament text says about Israel and what it is saying about God's Messiah it still stands true. God is still faithful to what he has. Has written and what he has said about his people and about the coming of his Messiah. And so, following the list of privileges, someone might ask in the light of Israel's failure to believe the gospel, is God faithful to his promises? Now, for us to understand that, we need to think about it against the backdrop of the basis by which God had chosen Israel to be his people, which comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 7, where it tells us that God has set his love on Israel. Not because they were worthy, but because the Lord loved them and because he swore to their fathers, saying, Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations. So God claims to be faithful in Deuteronomy 7. He claims to keep his covenant. He claims that his mercy will endure for a thousand generations. Yet, now that the Gentiles are receiving the promises, the gospel, does this mean that God is being unfaithful since those people that he cast his love upon, that he said that he'd be faithful to, that he said that his mercy would be with, and his covenant have now rejected him? So is God faithful in that regard? So that's, that's why this question is being asked, because there is a whole history that Israel has as it relates to the people of God. And they're looking back on their history, looking back in the Old Testament, and saying, see what it says here. God is supposed to be faithful to us, but yet now it seems that he is rejecting us. So is God indeed faithful? And so to this, Paul immediately and emphatically says, no. No. It is not true that God is not faithful. It is true that God is faithful. Now, to show the emphasis in the text, the verse could be translated as, By no means is it that God's word has failed and remains fallen. By no means does it mean that God's word has failed and remains fallen. In fact, this word that's translated here in my my, uh, translation of no effect, some of you may have failed, but this word that's translated here, um, is uh, meant to come from uh, Isaiah chapter 40 in verses 7 through 8 with the usage of the word fail. The word frequently refers to flowers fading and or falling. And in the Isaiah passage, people are grass and flowers in contrast to God's word. So in Isaiah 40 and verse 7, it says the grass withers and the flower fades, and it's referencing to the verse above, which refers to humanity. It's humanity that is like flowers that falls and withers, but then the passage that we know so well here in our church the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. So it appears that that's the background imagery with verse 6 in mind that the word of God has no effect. So the word is being used there, it's used for flowers falling or grass withering. And so Paul is saying that the word of God is not like that. It's not like the grass. It's not like the flowers. In fact, from Isaiah 40, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but it's the word of God that is always faithful and always abiding. So if this is the background verse, then Paul is hinting at the problem. It is not God's word that withers and fades. It is humanity. The problem is, is a sinful rejection of God's word that negates his promises. So with this in mind, Deuteronomy 7 and 6 through 11 regarding God's gracious choosing of Israel needs to be read more carefully. Yes, Israel can claim that Deuteronomy 7 does say that God is faithful, keeping his covenant, and merciful to a thousand generations, but it specifically states that God is all of that to those who love him and keep his commandments. Again, God's word has not failed like a flower and grass after the frost. Israel has withered and faded. For Paul's, Israel's rejection of the gospel does not mean that God's word has failed. Now, this is not just an argument that is unique to ethnic Israel. It's important for all people. The defense of God's faithfulness is in essence a defense of his promises and really it's a defense at the heart of it, the gospel itself. If God has proven that he was not faithful to his promises to Israel, then how can we be sure that he will be faithful to his promises in the gospel? All the glorious promises given in Romans 8 are of no consequence if it is shown that God is a promise breaker. Like Israel before us, the promises of Romans 8 are for those who love God in Christ Jesus by his, and by his spirit keep his commandments. And Paul is clear on this in Romans 8 and verse 28. All things work for the good of those who love God. So Paul's point in this, in this just really brief um, verse here is God's word has not failed. And with Isaiah 40 as the background, he's launching in to this defense of God's word and saying, you're pointing the fingers at God's word, but it's you who has failed. You are the ones who have withered and faded. And it's not the word of God. God is faithful to his people. God keeps his covenant to his people. God is merciful to a generation, as Deuteronomy uh, Deuteronomy 7 says, but he's merciful to those who love him and keep his commandments. And so Romans 9 and verse 6 shows us that God is faithful to keep his word. He's faithful to his word. But Paul goes a little bit further in his argument, not only arguing from Isaiah 40 that Paul is faithful to his word, but he also wants to argue that God is still faithful to his people. And so if you look at the latter part of verse 6, it tells us, uh, For they are not all of Israel who are of Israel. And then in verse 7, Nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. And so what Paul does here is to defend God's faithfulness and the fact that his word does not fail. Paul does two things. Number one, he shows how God's actions are faithful to his word by using the scripture to defend God's faithfulness. In fact, Romans has more Old Testament allusions and quotations than any of Paul's other writings. There are 75 quotations in all of the book of Romans. 45 of them are in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. Now, I say that because... Paul makes the statement in Romans 6, the word of God has not failed, and now he's going to show with the word of God how it is not failed. He's going to show how God's word is indeed faithful by using the Old Testament scripture to make his point. So he, he argues for God's faithfulness by using Old Testament scripture, and then the other thing that, God, that Paul will do is that he's going to argue God's faithfulness by saying that the people of God are much deeper than appearances. That the people of God are much deeper than appearances. So he makes a statement, and this, is, this statement is so crucial for the rest of Romans 9, 10, and 11. Not all of Israel are of Israel. And what he means is, is that there is an ethnic Israel. There is a physical Israel. There is an Israel that has descended from the seed of Abraham, But within that Israel, there is a true spiritual Israel who is faithful to God. And so in a sense, he is telling Israel, you cannot make the claim that I am Israel, therefore these are my promises. Because those promises are not just, are not to ethnic Israel. Those promises are to God's people who are of the promise. There is a distinction. And we'll look at that distinction here in just a moment. And Paul's going to show this very specifically here in this text. So there is a difference between ethnic Israel and true Israel. And what Paul is doing is he's not redefining who Israel is. He is being consistent with how God has always understood the true Israel of faith. In fact, later on in Romans chapter 11, Paul is going to, quote, uh, go back in reference to prophet Elijah, where God tells Elijah that he has reserved 7,000 in all of Israel who have not bowed to Baal. The prophets Isaiah and Hosea both speak of an Israel within Israel, and John the Baptist pointedly told Israel of his day, and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up the children to Abraham from these stones. And so what Israel thought in Paul's day is just because they were the children of Abraham automatically meant they inherited the promises, that, they were, that it belonged to them. And to this, which Paul has been really arguing all throughout the book of Romans, is that is not the case. That being a child of Abraham does not mean Being ethnically from Abraham, being a child of Abraham, goes far deeper than that. And he doesn't just argue that as a new argument. He actually argues that from the Old Testament. And so this is what he does. He begins with Isaac, showing how Isaac was the child of the promise. So that's beginning in verses 7 through 9. So from this point, Paul will argue that physical descent from Abraham does not necessarily mean a child of the promise. So Israel of that day cannot claim I have Abraham as my father, therefore I am a child of promise. And Paul's going to give two examples of two different sons who were the child of the promise and who the other sons of Abraham were not the child of the promise. So the first son that he gives an example of is Isaac. And so if you'll note there, uh, at the end of verse 7, he says, In Isaac your seed shall be called. So... Anybody that has any background in the Old Testament knows that Isaac was not the only physical son of Abraham. In fact, altogether, Abraham had eight sons. He had one with Sarah's maidservant by the name of Hagar, then had six more with another maidservant. But it was only Isaac who came from both Sarah and Abraham. Now, interestingly... In this time period, it should have been Ishmael who should have been the child of the promise. And the reason for that is because Ishmael was the first one that was born. In fact, it was Sarah who orchestrated the whole thing for Ishmael to come into being with Abraham to begin with. And so Abraham is saying, look, Abraham had more sons than Isaac. Yet it was only Isaac that was the child of the promise. Ishmael could say, I was the firstborn of Abraham. I came directly from Abraham. But the promise wasn't given to Ishmael. The promise was given to Isaac. and So that's the emphasis of this this text. So God's promise was not just confined to Abraham. God has specifically said that the promise would come from both Abraham and Sarah, and Paul quotes Genesis twenty-one twelve to make this point when he says, Do not be distressed about the boy and about your slave, which is speaking about Ishmael and Hagar, because Abraham had to put them away because things were not going very well between Hagar and Sarah for obvious reasons. But this is what God says. He says, Whatever Sarah says to you, you listen to her, because your offspring will be traced through Her, which meaning Isaac. Now, this is not the first time in Romans that Paul has levied the charge that natural descent is not a claim to Abraham as one's father. In fact, if you look back in chapter 4 in verse 1, notice what it says. He says, what shall we say that Abraham, our father, was found according to the flesh? And so in Romans chapter 4, Paul argues that Abraham was justified by faith apart from the works of the law, thus making him the father of all who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what we see in Romans chapter 4 and verses 16 through 17, which tells us, therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So, earlier in Romans chapter 5, that the way that you become a child of Abraham is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Abraham was justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So, that means that all those who are of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are now children of Abraham. And then in chapter 4 and verse 17, he says, As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. And so the fulfillment of Abraham being the father of many nations by faith is seen in that the fact that not only that the Jews are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, but also the Gentiles, all the nations are coming into faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, which includes us as well. So if we've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, we placed our faith in him, then that means that we are a child of Abraham and that the promises belong to us. We are his people. We are the people of God. And so that's the argument that Paul is making. You have Ishmael, who's a direct descendant of Abraham, but he's not a child of the promise. The child of the promise is Isaac. So there's an ethnic Israel, but within that ethnic Israel there is a true Israel. There's a spiritual Israel. There's an Israel that received the promise. In fact, I think this idea of Abraham being the father of us all in faith is the trajectory that is going to be moving here in Romans 9, 10, 11, especially comes out in chapter 10. Now, the argument, Paul's going to tighten his argument, so he makes the case that Isaac is the seed of the promise as opposed to Ishmael and the other sons of, of Abraham. They were descendants of Abraham, but only Isaac received the promise. Now he's going to tighten his argument because he notices there's just some holes in his arguments. And so he's going to take it a little bit further, and he's going to bring up Isaac and Rebekah and their two sons, Jacob and Esau. So now Paul advances his argument that physical descent is not the determining criteria for what it means to be the true people of God. So one might easily dismiss Isaac as the child of the promise against Abraham's other seven sons, especially Ishmael. It's obvious why Isaac was chosen and not the others. He came from Abraham and Sarah. But what about Jacob being chosen over Esau as the child of the promise? Notice that the two women play a role in Paul's argument, both Sarah and Rebekah. Sarah, the wife of Abraham, and Rebekah, the Wife of Isaac. And the reason that Paul uses the argument that Isaac is the child of the promise versus Abraham's other son hinges on Sarah. And there are two reasons for this. God promised this to Sarah, that she would have a child. And number two, she was barren. Sarah's inability to have children was overcome by divine intervention. With this in mind, it's obvious that why Isaac was the child of the promise. However, Rebekah was also barren, and God, too, opened her womb not just to have one son, but to have two sons at the same time, twins. The children both belong to Isaac. They both belong to Rebekah. There's two children in the womb. Which one will be the child of the promise? So if the twins were were by divine intervention, which one would be that child? Logic in this time period would be the one that came first, which was Esau. But instead, Jacob, the second one, is the child of the promise. So in that time period, the firstborn son inherited all the rights of the father. In fact, this was Isaac's intention from the very beginning. Isaac was first, so he was going to receive the blessing, or Esau was first. So he was going to receive the blessing of Isaac. Plus, Isaac was a foodie. And he liked the fact that uh, Esau made a nice stew. And so he was going to give him the blessing just on the very basis of that. And then we learn that later on, that Abraham, or Jacob, whose name means the tricky one, he deceived his father Isaac, and Isaac gave Jacob the blessing instead of Esau. So... That, that, that's, how, that's how it worked out, in real time and space. But we find here in this text why Jacob was really chosen and not Esau. And the choice of Jacob over Esau was entirely gracious. It was by God's grace. And it did not depend on any good or evil that they have done, because that choice was made before they were born. As we see in verse 11 of Chapter 9, where it tells us, For the child, children, not yet having been born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who called. So God God had his own reason of why he chose Jacob over Esau. In fact, if we look at both of them, both Esau and Jacob, as far as works is concerned, they're both on the same level. Esau's willing to sell his birthright for some food, and Jacob's willing to go down the road of deception in order to inherit the birthright, or to become the child of the promise. And so neither one of them deserved it. But it was by God's gracious choice that it belonged to Jacob over Esau And so the choice of Jacob over Esau, as I mentioned, was already, it was already uh, played out before they were born. and Paul quotes Genesis 10 or 25:23 to show this, "The older will serve the younger." This Old Testament reference further establishes that works have nothing to do with God's divine choice. It was the right of the oldest son to receive the blessing from his father. Instead, the blessing went to the second son. Now, the emphasis on not from works and God's gracious choice ties this section with the rest of the letter, especially in regards to justification. One's right standing before God through Jesus Christ. Justification is freely by God's grace alone through the redemption in Jesus Christ. There is no boasting. In the law, there is no boasting in our work. There is no boasting in who our Father is. But only in God who saves by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is our boast. And so the same thing is true for us as it relates to our own salvation. That we cannot look back and say, this is why this happened. The reason that you are saved today is by God's grace and God's grace alone. There is no boasting in you. There is no boasting in anything. God has been gracious to save us through his son, Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who did all the work, did he not? It was Jesus who lived the perfect life. It was his works that were fully accepted by God. It was his life on the cross that was fully accepted by God and is now applied to us by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the emphasis here in this passage that Paul is making, he's pushing against this idea of works where these these Jews who think, I'm, I'm part of Israel, I've descended from Abraham, I do this, I do that, we keep the law, we do the sacrifices, we do all this stuff. And Paul uses Jacob and Esau as an example in saying, it's not by works, it's by God's gracious choice. And in order for him to make it even clearer, he goes even before the two sons that were born and says that it was Jacob that was chosen, and it was not Esau. And Paul wants to make this point even clearer about Jacob's choice as the child of the promise by quoting Malachi 1, 2 through 3. So if you'll notice there in verse 13, he says, As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And this is a verse that comes from Malachi 1 and 2 through 3. And the context of this quote from Malachi considers the devastation suffered by Edom. Edom descended from Esau, and God's covenantal law for Israel, who was Jacob. As the promise passed to Jacob, he would have 12 sons who would make up the tribe of Israel. Although rejected as a child of the promise, God would make out of Esau a nation, the Edomites. Now, this, is, this reference here is an overly harsh reference, and Paul intended to do so in order to joke his audience. The point of this quote is not only to emphasize Jacob's choice over Esau, but to show that physical descent from Abraham does not automatically entail God's elective purposes. That descendants from Abraham does not automatically entail God's covenantal love, God's relational love on you. Esau came from Isaac. He came from Abraham, but he was not a child of the promise. All of those people, the Edomite, they came from Abraham, they came from Isaac, and yet what it said about them here in this text, Esau I have hated, and Jacob I have loved. And so God's love is cast upon Jacob, is cast upon those those people, specifically in the context of Malachi 1 and 2 through 3. And so this reinforces what Paul states in verse 6, not all of Israel is Israel. Esau, the nation of Edom, was from both Abraham and Isaac. They may be children of the flesh, but they are not children of the promise, the seed. And this reference in Malachi now applies, which I think is interesting. I think there's kind of a reversal that's, that's taking place here with respect to Israel. Because the the... Rejecting Israel is now learning that they are not the seed of the promise. They are not the children of the promise. So if they are not the children of the promise, there begins a reversal of rows, so to speak, as it relates to this quote from Malachi 1 and 2 through 3. Esau I've hated, Jacob I have loved. And so now that the Jews are rejecting the Messiah... Where do they fit into that equation? Jacob I have loved or Esau I have hated. Which which further is kind of a, a further reversal where the Gentiles, who would be part of the Edomites, are now coming in and they're receiving the Messiah by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're receiving the Messiah. And now it is God who's showing his love upon them. There's more to this that's going to come up in the Romans 9 as we go forward. But one of the main key things here that we find in this text is that God is faithful to his word and that God is faithful to his promise. Now, as we think about the argument that Paul is making here as it relates to not all of Israel is Israel, that there is a true Israel, there's a spiritual Israel, there's an Israel that God's love is on because they have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ through the Messiah by the grace of of God? I think that's a a question that we ought to be asking ourselves as well as it relates to how we identify. What is the basis by which you can say you are the children of the promise? That you are part of the true people of God? What is the basis of your assurance Israel claimed that their heritage, their physical descent from Abraham, and their works are what made them the people of God. You may claim your own heritage. You grew up in church. You had an emotional, spiritual experience at camp. You have a baptism certificate. You try to be a good person. The basis of your assurance is on God's divine grace. God's grace to you who is Son, Jesus Christ. That is the very basis of your assurance. And this is the point that Paul is making here in this text. It is not by, you can say, I'm a Jew, therefore I'm in, but it's by God's grace. And the question that Paul is is putting at his audience is, are you the true Israel? And so maybe that's the same question that could be asked of us today. Are Are we the true Christians? Are we the true church? Because within the context of Christianity, there are the true Christians. Christianity encompasses so much, even within the context of Bible-believing Christians, that people claim the fact that they are a Christian on the basis of their heritage, on the basis of where they are, whether they're in church, whether they're on a membership row somewhere, whether they've been baptized. That's what they hold to be the determining factor of whether they're a Christian or not. But the determining factor of whether you're Christian or not, is whether you've been saved by grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. And God always keeps his words. And God is always faithful to his people, to his true people. Those who have been saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.